we believe that we can make diagnoses with history and physical. We believe it to the core of our soul. To have a Timmy score of zero, you have to be less than 60 and be Superman. We've just taken a 30-year step backwards. Don't let some kind of pseudo-expert tell, tell you that this is the standard of care. It is not the standard of care. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's now October 2013. Uh, a touch of fall has come to Michigan. You know, it's toasty in the air and over in the emergency department. They're roasting ch chestnuts over a flaming wino. Uh, hello, Rick. How are you? Hey, Greg, that was uh, pretty uh, irreverent as a beginning. And so uh, we can imagine the uh, uh, letters we're going to get because some people are kind of sensitive. You know, uh, that means that when the fall is hitting your area, it means the permafrost is uh, is refreezing, I believe. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. My daughter, who lives about, uh, as you remember, about 15 miles from you, says uh, it's been a very hot uh, August and uh, September out there. Um, are you are you recovering? Are you are you doing all right at this point? Well, actually, it was very hot, and uh, typically this is the hottest time of the year. However, it is moderated substantially over the last uh, several days, and it is absolutely. <laughs> Uh, beautiful, even though it is uh, only 9.30 in the morning. Hey, listen, do you want to get started on this thing or not? Yes, yes, no, we need to do it. So let's start out. And, and you know, we've been doing all this bad news for so long. We might as well start out with some good news, or at least it's sort of good news. Why don't we do that, Rick? Would that be a good idea? Yeah, a little rip. Okay, here's some good news. And this is hot off the Internet, so you know it has to be the truth because they can't have anything that's not the truth on the Internet. Medical malpractice payments in 2012 were the lowest on record. This is according to Public Citizen. Now, I know we're going to get letters about this. Public Citizen, yeah, they're left wing, they're this, they're that. But they report this right out of the National Practitioner's Data Bank and say 2012 is the lowest payouts on record uh, since since we've been keeping those statistics. And what that means is, Rick, this may actually be good news for physicians and those people who pay for insurance policies. What do you think? Well, you know, I, um, I, I have a belief that if there was one malpractice suit in a state per year, doctors would still behave uh, defensively. I think that the fundamental problem is that doctors are be afraid of being sued, and they still can be sued and have all of the trauma associated with being sued. So until the system totally changes to one of these no-fault systems, I don't think that it matters one whit to tell you the truth. Uh, and when you look at the data, the data is basically, this is evidence proof, their uh, physician behavior. Um, you know, and the other thing is they talk about the National Practitioner Data Bank, and the critics are going to say, well, you know, there's all of these settlements for $29,999. Don't get re reported to the database. Um, yeah, I think there's some of those, but I st still think that this is, this is true. The uh, study also found that malpractice payments had dropped for the ninth year in a row with only 94, about 9,400 payouts noted for the year, 9,400 for the year in the United States of America. Over the same period, the malpractice payments have dropped on average about 30%. And we'll see a state where they drop 50%. Cost of health care have risen by 58%. So this is not 
evidence doesn't work here, Greg. The problem is this, Rick. Too many people honestly think there's some correlation between payouts, malpractice, cost of health care, who's doing what tests. We don't have much data to support that. So I, I would say that they're almost in, in independent uh, variables because doctors believe something which is not necessarily supported by the data. By the way, when you figure that out, that those 9,400 payouts, and the criticism of that, of course, is that a lot of big institutions where doctors is, are employed, they only report the institution and not the doctor. Mm -hmm. I agree. So, so that's a problem in understanding the data. But when you think about it, that's only one in every 78 doctors in America. If you take the MDs, the DOs, the chiropractors, anybody who calls themselves doctor and pays malpractice insurance, uh, you're talking about one in every 78. So that it is a, uh, it is still um, a relatively rare event. It has been going down. Those are good things, but they're totally independent of healthcare costs. And that's because I think as we continue to develop new expensive toys, tests, and medications, there, there's just this training mode which says you're going to cover your butt no matter what. And uh, this isn't a good thing. It, 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 it's, this is, however, a challenge to the idea that malpractice uh, is a driver of health care costs. And quite frankly, uh, if you look at all the data, malpractice premiums are about 0.36 uh, of um, of a percent of healthcare costs. I mean, we're talking about way down at the bottom, but it's the behaviors of physicians which are expensive. So, what's driving this thing? I think it's very difficult to say. Well, I think that what's driving it is the same fear, but the fear is becoming more and more and more irrational. But as long as there's the fear of you protect of you being sued out there, I don't think doctors care one whit about the fact that these numbers are going down. They still are at risk. The risk is getting infinitesimally smaller and smaller, but they don't care. They, they just don't want any parts of being sued. And the other thing is their training has been such that this will take generations of doctors to undo even if there were no suits starting tomorrow. I, I think that it's been since the Second World War, and if we say that that's been 60, 70 years, we've, we've seen three or four groups of doctors now come through, big chunks of doctors. Nobody's cared about the cost. Nobody's asked any real questions. The proposed health care improvement acts, that sort of thing, don't even deal with these kinds of issues. Quite frankly, I, I agree with you, Rick that we, you and I will be long dead before we see a change in behavior in physicians. Well, you know, we did note uh, in one of the more recent recordings that both Georgia and Florida are trying to initiate a no-fault uh, system and akin to the stuff that goes on in New Zealand where they separate out, this patient has been injured, they need to be compensated, there's a pool of money that it, it does that. And then there's the second part of that that's, that says, Let's have physicians analyze the performance of the involved physicians to see whether, in fact, there were breaches from the standard of care. And if so, what kind of 
action should be taken in terms of remedial action or training or whatever, whatever, or, or limiting of privileges or for a while or those kinds of things. But they are really separate. And the nice thing about that system is that patients who right now have no recourse in terms of justice, even though they've been injured because, you know, there's these caps on pain and suffering that make it such that lawyers are not interested in you know, taking their cases, they would have access to, um, to care. Uh, and there was one other thing I wanted to mention that you had mentioned that declining premiums really have not resulted in any kind of change of behavior in physicians, that the costs are going up independent of uh, whether there's any uh, malpractice reform. But there may be one thing that has come out of it uh, that is beneficial in that uh, patients may have better access to care now than they they have in the past. And I've got something here that basically acknowledges that now that there's tort reform, particularly in Texas, that specialists are more willing to care for patients and have patients referred to them than, um, than it was the case in before. As a matter of fact, I got an um, article sent to me by Bill Norcross. It's, in, it's from the uh, September issue of Texas Medicine, which is the uh, journal of the Texas Medical Society. Actually, it's a, little, it's a newspaper kind of thing. And it's entitled, Gone to Texas. Tort reform attracts physicians to Texas, and it follows a doctor, Justin Hensley, who um, at the beginning of the article, they say that, um, well, he was trained in North Carolina, and he uh, did his training, and then he was looking for a place to practice. So, uh, Greg, why don't you pick up what, what happened to this uh, poor young doctor here? Well, I, I think this is very sad. He saw a whole series of patients in fact, he even talks about the one patient he saw, a 30-year-old male who'd received 20 CT scans at his training program. Now, I don't know whether this is for his low back pain or his headaches, but it's always one of those two. It doesn't uh, matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, what we've done on a 30-year-old is just made sure he's going to have a lymphoma at age 60. Uh, because of the liability climate in North Carolina, the residents were instructed to order tests regardless of necessity as sort of a medical legal cover. Now, I think that's crap. I think that's crap right off the top. But uh, he felt that they needed to have this sort of medical legal defensive, whatever it is. And I think this puts a bad taste. It did for him, it, for this young physician, but a bad taste in his mouth and his wife, who was a pediatrician. And so they decided to settle in Texas, where liability uh, reforms have taken place. Right. That, that statement, residents were instructed to order tests regardless of necessity, is a direct quote from this article. And I honestly believe it's true. Uh, I don't think it's unique to one residency. Uh, I think that it's pretty pervasive. Now, I don't know that anybody would put it in words like this, but if in fact you behaved as this doctor says, that is, um, that is unethical, it's immoral, and it's fraud. And it's probably fattening too, Rick. I mean, it's, it's certainly intellectually fattening because it, 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 the other thing is, if you're going to practice like that, you don't need doctors. You don't need to make any decisions. Uh, there's a, there's another quote in the article about uh, Sandra Williams, another e e emergency physician practicing Texas notes, how difficult it was to get specialists to see ED patients when she practiced in Florida. And it was easier in Texas. 
And she thought, at least, that the change in the malpractice climate um, related to that, Arlo Welke, who's a friend of all of ours, um, very active in ASAP, is quoted extensively in this article, basically saying the difference before and after tort reform is like, as he puts it, night and day. And I guess at least in Texas, they've had some at least intellectual relief, if nothing else. Right. Uh, you know, that this article notes that in 2012, uh, Texas per capita had the smallest payouts of any state in the union. It averaged $3.03 per capita for payouts in that year. New York was the worst at $38.99 per capita in awards. So, that, you know, it's a monstrously huge difference. The article actually had a graph in it of the substantial increase in physicians being licensed in Texas since uh, 2003, where these reforms uh, took place. And the chart is really fairly uh, impressive. Justin, well, let's, let's be real fair here, uh, Rick. It's hard to compare one state to the other for a lot of reasons. But if we actually take the state that was the lowest in this study, which is South Dakota, and we take the highest in this study, which, which was New York, followed within a few cents by Florida, you got to ask yourself some question. The doctors in, in Florida and in, in, uh, that, in New York can't be 15 times as, as negligent as the doctors in South Dakota. They can't be. And it, uh, what we know is they spend more money. Three, in fact, I think the current data is three times as much money is spent on a Medicaid, Medicare patient in New York than is spent in, for example, Minneapolis. And, and the liability, suit rates, any of these things, none of it has to do, no matter how much money you spend, none of it has to do with how often you get sued or how much money is awarded. Yeah, Justin Hensley uh, is uh, quoted in this paper saying, since I teach residents now that he's moved to Texas, I feel that this will help decrease the cost of medicine over time as doctors no longer have to overtest. This also helps decrease waiting times in the ED as no patients no longer have to occupy beds waiting for the results of unnecessary tests. I, um, I honestly don't agree with Justin. I think that this will it's not affect the cost of medicine since well, doctors don't believe the data. They don't care about the data. They don't want to be sued, period. Rick, you and I and a, and a certain group of people are risk takers as opposed to risk averse in personality. We believe that we can make diagnoses with history and physical. We believe it to the core of our soul. Some people do not. But I think, I think this Texas Liability Trust, which is the largest insurer of physicians in Texas, has decreased their rates overall uh, since uh, 2003 by about uh, 50%. And so there is a financial benefit to the physicians. Now, the real question to ask is, did any of this get passed on to the patients? If the patients are part of this and the doctors are part of this, did we also drop our charges to the patients? I'm willing to bet that that didn't actually happen. No, actually, a Medicare study said that a study of Medicare data from Texas showed that Texas spends more money per capita on Medicare patients than uh, than the national average. So if anything, um, it hasn't had any effect on Medicare 
uh, patients whatsoever. They note that um, the number of claims in 2003, the year that this thing took place, there was 3,600 claims, and that in 2012 there was about a thousand claims. And it's a and 16 insurance companies have moved into Texas that weren't there before because I think it is highly profitable to have a malpractice insurance in Texas because there's a gap between what the premiums are and what are being what's being paid out that is just you know uh, attracting you know bees to like to the, to the honey or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but there is a downside to this. Um, there's a report that I, I got here from Mid, the Midland Reporter, which is Midland, Texas. It's from the Midland Reporter Telegram. On July 29th, they, there was a press conference where a lawyer said that he was going to sue the local hospital there because of a failure to diagnose appendicitis in a six-year-old girl. And at the press conference, the parents were there and everybody was crying and they wheeled in this girl who had some brain damage and who lost her right leg in this process. And this um, attorney said that, and this all occur, uh, was, this press conference occurred two years after the whole business began. And uh, they had $1.6 million in, in medical bills over the two years. And the attorney said that the projected medical costs for this girl were going to be $40 million over her lifetime, but that the hospital was protected by governmental immunity and would cap the damages that it would pay the family to only $100,000. And so this is another one of those examples where people who really have been harmed um, are unable to receive you know, reasonable, even, even minor uh, uh, compensation. This child had gone to the doctor with weakness, fever, diarrhea, anorexia, and abdominal pain. She went to the ER was discharged with a diagnosis of, quote, dehydration, quote. And um, after a number of other return visits and other visits to the family, doctors and the pediatricians, she was ultimately flown to a children's hospital where they had her appendix removed. She had cardiac arrest several times during the surgery, did, did recover with some <laughs> mental problems, and three months later had a valisepticemia where it cost her 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 leg, and um, this, and this was just, you know, I think that this is not an exception in terms of people who are being harmed because we have given up our opportunity to achieve justice by, you know, all of these quote-unquote reforms, which, you know, are reforms for doctors and insurance companies, but are sure not helping patients, I don't think. Well, in all fairness, uh, in this particular case, there's a real simple way of handling this. Just give the kid a, a, a state card where they can take it anywhere they want to get the care, let the care get paid for. I mean, a lot of these numbers are my, uh, mythical and magical numbers. They've had uh, $1.6 million in, uh, in health care costs. Well, you know what? The family didn't pay $1.6 million. Almost no family can. And so if we had a system where we just decided here, get the care, we'll give it to you. Uh, then they, first of all, they couldn't sue for health care costs. And secondly, it would be absorbed in the, into the larger population right. uh, paying for it. And I, I think that the system itself is fundamentally wrong. And I don't know when we're going to come up uh, about that. It was interesting that the lawyer was uh, quoted some things in the article, which are, which are interesting. Quotes, nobody has apologized to the family. 
Nobody has said that they were sorry. Nobody has done anything to try and provide for any care for Hannah. And I think that on a personal level, it's interesting that, that nobody's really sitting down, uh, sat down to say, this is a tragedy. If this was my kid, this would be a tragedy. And I think that we've made an adversarial system where we can no longer be human beings. And I think that that's the biggest problem. Well, actually, we're going to talk a little bit later about um, a little bit more about uh, apology. I wanted to bring up a Medscape survey of Sue doctors. I've never seen a survey of Sue doctors. Um, have you, Greg? Yes, I have, as a matter of fact. But uh, th this is the latest one I've seen. This was just published, I think, in July. And they did look at, at what, 1,400 physicians who had been sued. Right. And, 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 and in this case, they asked them some pretty important questions. Go through them, Rick. Well, you know, uh, this, these doctors represented all specialties. This was not just emergency medicine. Typically, uh, multiple parties uh, were named in the, uh, in the suit uh, with the idea here that, and Greg, you, you would, you would I, I guess, affirm this, that the more people you name, the more likely you'll find somebody with some money that's going to pay out uh, somebody. You don't want to name just one doctor. <laughs> um, I mean, it's that's more just than not just the way money. the game is played. Yeah, it's more than just money. If you name it, if you give an infinite number of monkeys, an infinite number of typewriters, they will <laughs> type all the great books. If you give an infinite number of doctors or two thoracic surgeons, they will turn on other doctors and and uh, and boost up what the uh, returns are. There's no question that if you find put enough docs in the pot, they'll say it's not me, it's him. And as soon as they get that to happen. Now, all of a sudden, the plaintiff has exactly what they want, is doctors picking on other doctors. So uh, there is a reason to name a lot of people, and that's the principal reason. Yeah, they basically noted that failure to diagnose was the single biggest reason for being sued. That's no secret, uh, my friends. If you don't make the diagnosis, the care is delayed and the harm is increased. And so that's kind of intuited. By the way, for uh, for those of you who are going to be at the uh, ASAP National Meeting in Seattle, I'm going to be giving a course with uh, Jillian Schmitz, who's a great young gal. And the reason we're giving this uh, course is because she was so devastated by the lawsuit experience. In this case, in the Medscape survey case, 23% of the doctors thought it was a horrible experience like the worst experience of their life. 16%, it was a very bad experience, disruptive, humiliating. 41% uh, said it was very upsetting, but they were able to function. Now, if you add all those numbers up, you've got a few other people who I guess it wasn't so bad for, but they're liars. Um, I, I don't know of any doctor where, it's, where, it's, uh, where this doesn't happen. Three quarters of them, by the way, were surprised to be sued. Surprise, surprise. Surprise. 24% uh, were suspecting a lawsuit, uh, but only 1%, one out of 100, actually knew for sure that the lawsuit was coming. I think that sometimes we don't have a perspective on how we're viewed by the public. 24%, uh, by the way, were dismissed early on. 25% uh, went on to deposition phase, which, by the way, is the most frightening phase for physicians. If you're not being properly prepped for deposition, um, uh, it is a miserable experience. 
Uh, then 21%, about, you know, about a little, about 80% went on to trial, 16% went on to verdict. Now, in, in the kind of work that I've done, I think about that number is right. Between 85 and 90% do not reach verdict. Only 10% are actually decided by a jury. And I think that's about right. Those numbers have held over the last 30 years. You know, they also said that about a quarter of them spent more than 40 hours on defense preparation. Uh, a similar number said that they spent more than 40 hours in court or trial-related meetings. The process lasted uh, in a quarter of them. It lasted for one one year or less. But these numbers show that this stuff really drags out. 40% lasted one to two years, 28%, three to five, and more than five years. 11% of the cases, one in 10, last, ran more than five years with this gun to your head for five years. Yeah, um, oh no. It, 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 listen, if you if you talk and sit like I have with hundreds of doctors who've been sued, I can't tell you the number of people who've sat in the chair here in my office and cried about about what's going on in their life during that period of time. This is for real. Uh, the doc who doesn't think they're going to need some help and someone to discuss this with, I think they're they're in denial. I've had docs commit suicide while well, under suit. I mean, this is um, th- this is for real. By the way, where it said 28% spent more than 40 hours on defense preparation, their attorneys charged for 80 hours mm-hmm. of preparation. I promise you that. Right. What did they, what did they say, Greg? About you know what they thought about would have occurred if they said, "I'm sorry." Well, uh, the- you know the the "I'm sorry" phase, and this is a technical term now. I'm sorry is a program started here at the University of Michigan. It swept the country. They claim that's why the lawsuits are down. But 93 percent of these doctors said if I'd gone in and said, geez, I'm I'm sorry. By the way, saying I'm sorry is not the same as saying I'm guilty. But 93 percent said they don't think it would have changed the outcome. And And only 9% of the cases did the insurance company actually require the doctors to settle. I think that's a trend which is going to skyrocket. It's going to go up. You will be required to settle because if you put everybody else at risk, you know, for the larger verdicts, this is going to be a new phase in um, at least emergency medicine malpractice cases. In 2% of the cases, this is very strange to me, the defendant had to pay all or part of the award. Now, I've been involved in, I think, the only two cases in Michigan where emergency physicians have actually lost money out of their pocket. I I don't know why it's that large a number here, but uh, Rick, are you aware of, of doctors paying out of their own pocket very much in California? No, I'm not. When I looked at this, it was like, how how would that occur? And I think the only way it would really occur is, I guess, if you're over over limits. And it's kind of rare that people would go after you over limits, but I think it's not zero. In a future Ed, episode, I may discuss those cases. Um, one has to be very careful because there are sensitivities out there. And you know what a sensitive guy I am, Rick. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you but, know, they said in 9%, the insurance company required a settlement. And so if you're going to fight with them and, and not settle, then this may be the reason that at least 1% or 2% of these uh, people 
had to pay because they said, hell no, I'm not settling. And, you know, they thought it was a matter of honor and, and all this other crap, and um, which it isn't. But in, in any case, that's what the statistics showed in this survey. What did they say were the worst things about the trial? Number one, they said answering clinical questions to a non-clinician, meaning the lawyers. Number two, discovery. And I've seen this, and this is this is just intimidating. List the date, publisher, and title of every book, magazine, journal you own and or subscribe to. Have You've seen that, Greg? I've seen it, and in most cases, the judges don't enforce that. Uh, we put something in that says that's onerous. Uh, there's really no reason for most of that stuff. And I think that that's why these should be answered in conjunction. Whenever these interrogatories come, a physician should never answer these by themselves. Those are answered with the attorneys who have a lot of experience in what to put down. And you know what? Avoid that. By the way, when, when you talked about the fact that some docs view this as honor, uh, there's no question that there's part of that. But as I've always said, if you want to defend your honor, get a rapier, buy a gun, depending on what state you live in. That's how honor is protected. Insurance policies protect your finances. And, uh, you know, the, the, they're suing you for money. Your insurance company is the one who has the handle on that money. You have to work with them cooperatively on some of these issues. You know, the third thing that they said were in, in terms of ranking what was the bad things at the trial was someone impugning your medical care and, qual, uh, and character. And that gets to what you're just saying right there. And then lastly, <laughs> waiting for the jury to return. I guess that would be kind of uh, a little um, nerve wracking. I'm sitting here today waiting to hear how that uh, trial went. I was in uh, yesterday in Ohio, and we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. Is there some advice here for the other doctors? It, it's hard to know what actually pushes things in, in various directions. This particular article says, follow up even when you don't think you have to. Well, you know what? That's just sort of common sense, that you make sure that the circle of care is closed. You've spoken to their doc. You've sent the messages. Uh, you and I always, Rick, have had interesting cases that we've written down their phone number and called them and said, how did you do? You know, uh, I've never met a patient who wasn't complimented by that. Did you? No, I, I agree. They appreciate the uh, attention. They're surprised that you're calling. Yes. No, they love I, it. They love it. I, I, I agree. And I, I, I knew for a while there at our department, we had one of our nurses calling the patients who were there before, and it was really a good thing to do. Um, I can tell you that I've been uh, getting involved in looking at what some urgent care centers do, and they do that stuff. They are very, very, very interested in creating a very positive experience for their, uh, for their patients, and it's like no question that they do that kind of stuff. We don't because we're, quote, I'm too busy or we can't afford it, although I do see that there's uh, some commercial services that somehow connect the, uh, you to them and they do the follow-up calls for you. Now, this was the advice of the doctors who were sued giving advice to uh, us doctors who haven't been in suit. So they said, yeah, follow up. And they also said, practice more defensive medicine. Shoot me. I don't think we can practice more defensive medicine. Well, the other Docu one is document. Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, how much crap can you put down? The other thing is, 
as as I've seen, uh, I just spoke to two residencies in the last two weeks. There's a zillion things on the chart, but the important things are not there. It's not very often that the re-examination of the patient is ever documented. Oh, let's they're, say they, they're extraordinarily important. Extraordinarily important. Absolutely. The other thing is, um, when they come in with a neuro complaint, you ought to have a reasonable neurological exam, not neuronormal, on that chart. Uh, I don't care whether you've looked in their ears. I really don't care if you've if their toenails need cleaning. But the area involved, the the chief complaint area, should be properly examined. And I'll tell you what, it almost never happens. And uh, and it's it's sad to have to go defend these cases. It's it's bad. By the way, they also give some advice in this thing about for doctors who are obviously not emergency doctors. They obviously. say get rid of demanding non-compliant patients. Hello, you've just now described my patient population. Yeah, send them to the ER. <laughs> send them to the ER is is what their suggestion is. And I think, oh, my God, all this means is the people that dislike doctors in the first place are going to come to see us. Uh, by the way, in this month's issue of Annals of Emergency Medicine, they talk about the noncompliance of patients with the with the drugs we prescribe them and that sort of thing. And uh, could they change that behavior by by various programs started? The answer no. was no. They no. couldn't change the behavior. Didn't no. happen. So we have for you in our notes the uh, citation where you can go onto um, the website and check out this survey in more uh, detail. Little emails, Greg. I'll tell you, we have the most dedicated group of people who write to us. And uh, remember Perry Como used to have that time, letters, we get letters. Yes. Well, we get letters, yes. And No, uh, no, these are not letters. These are emails. Well, these are – same thing to me, Rick. Okay. Uh, we got I don't an, even know who Perry Como is, uh, Greg. Well, Rick, $10 if you can actually say the entire thing which they sang before his You mean request. dream along with me? I'm dream. on my way to a star? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> By the way, uh, we got an inquiry from a fellow wanting to get our two cents regarding being an employee or an independent contractor when acting as an EMS medical director. The focus was primarily on the medical legal perspective, which would put him at more risk if the medics screw up. Well, actually, uh, we got an uh, email back from this uh, fellow, and, he, and we had given our two cents, and he said his preference was to be kind of on the employee side and get hired uh, by the, um, I guess, the fire department or something yes. like that. And I think, actually, that would give him the most protection because not only would he be protected from malpractice, but he would also be uh, have all of these other protections associated with liability in terms of slip and fall and, you know, I get hurt on the job or any of these other kinds of things, which would not occur if he was an independent contractor and um, had malpractice insurance, you know, granted to him through the uh, agency or his own uh, insurance would cover it. So there, I, I guess there are some advantages in being an employee. I think the downside is that you're, when you're hired by a municipality, I mean, this is not like hiring a guy to cut your grass. I mean, they've got all these rules and regulations, and you've got to go to uh, 
employee orientation and you got to go to harassment training and you got to go to sensitivity training and the be nice training and how to lift a box training and all of this other stuff. Did they have to train you how to harass people? <laughs> I, I, I thought medical school did that. I mean, I, I don't think you have to train people how to harass people. Well, I, uh, I, here's I the problem. Think these municipal organizations have all of these kinds of you know, uh, classes that you have to go to, whether they be on in live or on the internet or something like that. I hear, you know, I hear all the doctors at UCLA, you know, Jerry Hoffman had to take sensitivity training. I think he flunked, but you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. You know, but the good thing I guess about being an employee of a fire department is you can retire at 55 or 80% of your last year's salary where you worked all that overtime and you'll get all these health benefits for the rest of your life. Yeah, no, it's a. It's, I'm, I'm it's being good a little cynical way. there, I guess. You're being uh, you're being very cynical there. But other side of this is, um, having done this for 38 years, I have yet to review my first case against an EMS medical director. Mm-hmm. Now, I've certainly seen them involved in some ways about care that was given, but most EMS medical directors are involved in policy questions. And, and, and those sorts of things. And really, um, as long as your liability for your directorship role is covered, I don't think it matters whether you're an employee or an independent contractor. But if you work at a hospital, they want you to be the EMS medical director as part of your program. Good. Then have them give you a letter saying that for those activities, you will be covered under the hospital's insurance plan. Yeah, uh, I- this doctor had mentioned that um, he thought, yes, that you're right. It's mostly policy. Although these fellows may get involved in the um, remediation of cases where a paramedic may have screwed up, and then there's this issue about did, what did you do about it, and uh, those kinds of things. That may be they may be just acting as a consultant, and this may be the uh, job of the fire chief or whoever, whoever, whoever. Let me just give you a warning. Here's the warning: if you're a working in the emergency department guy who's got a good malpractice insurance, understand. The malpractice insurance covers you for work in the department at that specific hospital at that specific time. Unless it says different in the policy, it does not cover you for administrative duties. An EMS medical director is an administrative duty. So here's what you do. You never go and ask afterwards for coverage. You go now and say, will you extend this coverage? Send them a letter. Send somebody a letter and say, I want coverage added to this policy or have the hospital cover that liability. But never assume that a standard uh, emergency medicine malpractice policy is going to cover administrative duties because, to my knowledge, it does not. Hey, let's take it one step further. Uh, we've talked about this before. So you decide to treat one of the hospital um, employees who has got a cough for the last couple of weeks and has been diagnosed with bronchitis, and she wants uh, or he wants a Z-pack out of you. Yes. And um, you, uh, you agree and you write a prescription for a Z-pack, and uh, the person has a Stevens-Johnson syndrome and leaves all of their skin on the uh, bathroom floor one day and there's a big lawsuit and um 
and you expect to be covered. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is at least in our case, we paid malpractice insurance for every soul that went through the department. They looked at the log and they basically, that's how we paid kind of thing. Yeah. And this person will not be in the log. And so you never paid malpractice insurance for this person to be that you, uh, that you cared for because you never generated a record. Yeah. We're going to summarize this again. It's in the department. They've got a chart. You've signed that chart. The hospital has got a record of the patient being there. As far as the insurance company goes, if you decide to treat your neighbor, your friend, uh, your cousin, your uncle, if you decide to volunteer at a at a free shell a free shelter, these sorts of things, do good. They like you to do that, but they're not going to pay for it or cover it. And the uh, the one rule I teach in the in the administration course for ASAP is the four corners of the document. If it's not written in the document, it doesn't exist. And no, no judge wants to hear that argument. It won't go anywhere. Okay, Greg, how about a simpler case? Uh, suture removal by uh, nurses. Does a physician have to get involved? Well, you know, this is a letter that came to, to us, again, one of, the, one of our loyal listeners, and said, well, we don't have to look at wounds where the – just let the nurses take them out. And, uh, you know, really, uh, it's an emergency department – a request has been made uh, by them or someone with them for service. This sounds pretty Amtala-like to me. So we actually went to our good friend and world in, uh, Amtala expert, uh, Bob Bitterman, asking, uh, does a, a, a scheduled revisit to get the sutures out, does that meet the need for an Amtala exam? And he says, uh, long and short of it is, yeah, it probably does. But here's the good news. Here's great news. It, nowhere does it say, say in the Amtala regs that the screening exam has to be done by a doc. The, the, the uh, medical staff, the hospital, the board of the hospital could approve nurses to do wound checks and then pass on those things of questionable nature to the physician. And so it doesn't have to be a doctor, but it has to be somebody approved by the hospital staff and board of the hospital to perform such examinations. I think that most hospitals are going to be very reluctant to do that because, uh, as Bob noted in his uh, reply to this, you know, what happens if there's some issues of a foreign body or the thing is is not really, the suit genres aren't ready to come out yet, or, you know, I don't want to make a big deal out of taking sutures out, but this is a policy issue in terms of, the, the executive medical committee and the hospital administration have to collectively agree and formalize the, this, that in fact, nurses can do medical screening exams in this narrow situation. If they're wanting, willing to do that, great, but I think they're going to be more inclined to say, uh, you know, we don't want to go there. Why don't you just take a look at, a, at the wounds yourself kind of thing? So um, there are ways you can do it. And we're not only talking about you know, physicians, we're talking about, you know, PAs and NPs. Um, they see patients pretty much independently. I mean, you see these ERs where the PAs are seeing all these fast track cases. And at the end of the shift, the doctor's supposed to sign all these charts. Well, you know, that, that, 
that's a, not exactly what I would view as supervision. But anyway, that happens a lot. And I, I guess under those circumstances, the PA can take the stitches out. And you're going to sign the chart at the end of the shift. Or the NP can do it. I don't know. Well, it, it seems to me that that's where things are going. Um, I've certainly never seen an Amtala case about this. But uh, Bob, of course, uh, from his lawyer's point of view, is giving us uh, probably good advice here we should watch. And, Rick, at this point, we should put in just a little plug for Bob, who has been, you know, this is what he does. He's an expert in it. He's been extremely generous in helping us here on Risk Management Monthly with Amtala-related re uh, cases. So, Bob, I'd just like to thank you very much for uh, all of your efforts. Uh, you've never sent us a bill, and uh, you got to be the only attorney in the world who doesn't do that. So thanks a lot. Well, you know, the other thing about it is that we've talked in recent months about there was a case where we talked about where the attorney's fees were $100,000 in a case where they got off scot-free, and they, they probably should have never been, the hospital should have probably never been even charged. You know, I don't think that run-of-the-mill hospital attorneys know very much about Tala. certainly not as much as Bob Bitterman, particularly when it relates to emergency medicine. They're not students of it to the extent that he is. And it's like, why wouldn't you call, you know, an expert in this area, Bob's an attorney, rather than futzing around with your local yokels, uh, on this, there you know, and there's some other attorneys that you know. Steve Frude does the same kind of thing as well, but it's kind of like you're you're asking the wrong person for the answer here when you're when your hospital is kind of getting emptalized by the uh, by the feds. Yeah, the last thing I want to do is uh, speak to the person who does the hospital's slip and fall insurance exactly. and uh, those kind of cases. You know, you don't come to me in the emergency department to ask about your lymphoma therapy. I, I think we just need to be honest about what we do and actually do. Uh, next letter up is from one of our good friends and a great guy and a brilliant teacher, uh, Amal Matu. And uh, he is, Rick, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. He's a, a smart guy, and he proves this, of course, by listening to Risk Management Monthly. Absolutely. So, so hello, Amal. We're, we're glad to talk to you. He's noting that he's seeing a number of cases of people generally less than age 50 who have been who have had serial negative troponins who have EKGs that are not in fact totally normal whenever an EKG says on it non-diagnostic or equivocal that doesn't mean normal and so what he's seeing in these cases he he estimated that uh, seven out of the last 10 cases he's seen like this there were clear abnormalities on those EKGs. And the other three had subtle abnormalities. And uh, there are red flags here that should have been picked up. What do you think, Rick? Well, you know, I was uh, looking through our database just quickly before our, our um, conference uh, call this morning. And because uh, I know for a fact that we have in there a study that basically says ER physicians uh, screw up fairly frequently reading EKGs. And Amo's point here is that um, these EKGs in these cases were not normal. They were not nonspecific. They were abnormal. Seven out of 10 of them were abnormal. And uh, they got, you know, interpreted by the uh, doctors or the MP EPs as they're okay. And um, these, you know, these are lawsuits now because, you know, obviously somebody missed an MI and there may have been some negative consequences. Um, and he makes the point that 
we've done some studies and you know he he was referring to some comments that David Newman had made that you know how low the risk is in these people who have negative troponins and negative uh, e, uh, EKGs but he also said they have to be stone cold low risk um, because you know in some of these papers they're talking about having a Timmy score of zero to have a Timmy score of zero you have to be less than 60 and be Superman. Nobody, yeah, yeah, has, <laughs> nobody has a Timmy score of zero kind of thing. So if they're, if they're under 60 and are currently on the current U.S. Olympic team, <laughs> then okay, that, that, then maybe you make it. Uh, you know, Amal makes a very good point. David Newman, uh, of course, is a friend of ours and, and a, a very bright guy. He's raising the right set of issues, but he's doing it in the wrong climate. In Britain... They assume that that's correct. There's going to be 1% that they aren't going to pick up. They're going to go home and dead, go, be dead. In America, the acceptable miss rate is approaching zero, and that's the problem with these cases. But, uh, Amal, we thank you for writing in, and, uh, and we're, we're glad to hear you. Now we've got a case, Rick, that, that makes my blood boil. Oh, wait a minute. Aren't you wanna, don't you want to cover part two of Amal's uh, note to okay. us? Okay, sure, okay. Yeah, um, well, he, get, he gets more time, right? Yeah, he asserts that our assertion that residents overorder uh, uh, because of malpractice fears is not really true, and that he thinks that resident overordering is the result of poor supervision by the uh, faculty. And uh, he used to actually the word bad supervision and lack of supervision. And so the residents wind up, you know, being unguided, and they also are driven by the idea that they don't want to miss anything. They don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to go to more M and M conference and have shame and blame because they miss something. So they're driven by uh, these two motivators. The uh, faculty is not really very uh, conscientious about supervising their work, and they don't want to go to M and M. My own view of that is. Uh, I'm going to go listen to about 20 minutes ago where the doctor from North Carolina said we were instructed to order a test no matter what. The, que the quote, residents were instructed to order tests regardless of necessity because of fear of malpractice at this place. And so I'm not so sure that I fully agree that um, malpractice isn't an issue. The other thing is I think many faculty are very risk averse. And so they breed that risk averseness in their in their in their students. Um, tell us about rectal exams in pediatric patients, Greg. Uh, you're going to have to actually give me a big shot of Haldol before I start this one because it drives me crazy. This was a one of our people write, wrote to us a, a a loyal reader who said their insurance people at the hospital had okay. told them. They have to do a rectal exam on every child with abdominal pain. Uh, that would be what they require on the charts just to make sure they don't have appendicitis. And when I heard that they were requiring rectal exams on every kid, I said, we've just taken a 30-year step backwards. I'm aware personally of no society pediatricians pediatric surgeons, the Royal College of Surgeons, anyone who thinks that we should be doing rectals routinely to rule out appendicitis. Rick, this is just, this is craziness 
when when uh, insurance people are telling doctors how to practice medicine? Well, obviously there was a case where an appendicitis was missed, and it was asserted by some idiot uh, plaintiff expert that had a rectal been done, this case would not have been missed. You know and I know that that is totally crap, but I can tell you that I, I think it would be quite easy to find a plaintiff's expert who would say that, and the fact of the matter is, is that that is just not true. I did look up a paper from 1991 published in the Annals of the Royal College of Surgeons of England where they, uh, where they looked at the incidence of rectal exams. Now, obviously, this is an old paper. I mean, this is old news, actually, that between 1989 and 1985, there was a big change in how frequently rectal exams were done in England where they love to do rectals because they're kind of an anal society anyway. And um, basically, they found that there was no difference in the um, outcome of the cases, whether a rectal was done or not, in terms of the appropriate diagnosis of appendicitis. And this was probably before CAT scans were even invented. Well, uh, we've got a more recent paper than that, though, Rick. We've got, we've got uh, Mo McCullough's uh, and uh, Gazella Sharif's uh, co-authored paper in Pediatric Clinics of North America, 2006. And uh, they said straight out, Rectal exams uh, are not imperative in children presenting with abdominal pain. In, a partic- in particular, rectal exams have not been shown to be helpful in the diagnosis of appendicitis. Now, that doesn't mean no kid needs a rectal. Clearly, if you have a child with uh, bleeding, um, pain there, an infection, that sort of thing, but it ought to be selective. If you think, if, here's the myth. If you think that you can tell appendicitis by putting your finger up the butt of a two-year-old who's, you know, moving around on the bed and hates it, I, I just think, I think you're crazy. Uh, I've never found it useful to rule appendicitis in or out. No, and uh, I do believe that there are some official pronunciations by some societies that say... Um, if it's going to be done, it should be done by the, the person who's going to take the responsibility for operating or not. And, you know, even in Mo and Ghazala's reference here, they say, if a rectal exam is necessary, it can be performed by partially inserting a small finger. Do you know what inserting partially a small finger is? I mean, look at your small finger. How, how, how big is that thing? And if you partially insert it, so you've got your finger one inch up the kid's butt. Are you going to learn anything by doing that? Please. We all know that this is a myth, and don't let some kind of pseudo-expert tell you that this is the standard of care. It is not the standard of care. Hold on a second, Rick. I've got to remove my finger. Okay, there we go. <laughs> we, we can continue now. Well, you know, this, this doctor, <laughs> this is the second um, email that we've gotten from this doctor about mandates from their insurance company about how to treat patients. And this is absolutely absurd. This is, this, is, this is institutional craziness, and we need to get over it. Let me catch you up to date on a couple of cases we've been following uh, here on Risk Management Monthly. We got time for that, Rick? Yes, we do, Gregory. All right. We're going to, I'm going to reference, uh, reference Jillick v. Stockson. Now, those of you who get Risk Management Monthly, you can go back, look it up. We've referenced it twice in the past. 
Uh, and here's a quick synopsis. This had to do with the use of clinically published guidelines by, in this case, the American College of Emergency Physicians, but it probably doesn't matter. This goes to any of the specialty societies that puts out guidelines. Not only did the patient not present to an emergency department, it was in an urgent care center, uh, but the plaintiffs claimed they didn't do everything on chest pain that was in the ASEP guideline. Well, the trial court, the place where it was originally tried, said they could not produce the guidelines as standard of care. Standard of care would have to come in by a physician who testified. They could not use those as standard of care. Here in Michigan, when the, when the case uh, was, was essentially kicked out, the, uh, it was won by the defense, they appealed to the Court of Appeals and said, we had a right to use the guidelines as the standard of care. Well, heaven forbid, the appellate court reversed the decision of the lower court and said, yeah, that seems right to us. So they sent the case back down. We then, the, the emergency physicians, went ahead and appealed the decision of the appeals court to the Michigan Supreme Court. In May, they came down with a decision, uh, although split, uh, it's not a unanimous decision, but what they said was, that's right, standard of care is done at the time of trial by expert testimony, and published guidelines could not substitute for standard of care. We missed a bullet. We dodged a bullet on this one, Rick. Mm-hmm. Because if they'd been able to submit standard of care without having to have testimony go along with it, it would have been mayhem for us in the courts. This was one of those decisions which every other specialty in Michigan was looking at because the last thing they wanted was to have to take those myriad of guidelines. And you and I all know that guidelines of specialty societies are highly political. And, and they are often written by people who that's their area of interest. And so it may not reflect what's actually going on in the community. Uh, this was an important win for us uh, in this case. Well, uh, Greg, I think most of the people who get this will be listening after the ASEP Scientific Assembly has occurred because that's going to be in the middle of the month. And one of the things that I know that is coming up before the council has is ASEP's guidelines regarding the use of uh, TPA in, in stroke. And that was about a year old when that came out. And there has been a great deal of guffuffle about it because of the fear exactly that what you're, what you're saying, that somebody uh, who does not get uh, TPA used and wants to sue the doctor will basically bring these guidelines before the court and say, even the American College of Emergency Physicians said you should have done this, doctor. And so um, with a substantial subset of the population not agreeing with this, they didn't want to be railroaded into um, having to do this by their college. And so this is going to come up for sure before the ASAP Council. And um, I think that it will probably get somehow reversed or put aside or reconsidered or something like that. 
I don't think there's a I don't think there's a chance in hell that it's not going to get revised in some way, shape, or form. Uh, this is an area of huge controversy, and we need to we, we need to stay on top of this stuff. We can't let this stuff just sort of uh, drift away and not take action. It's important. Let me give you one other update, which is interesting. An emergency department case that went again to the appeals court in the state of Indiana. This is Upham, U-P-H-A-M versus Morgan County Hospital. This had to do with a procedural question. When they're selecting a, a jury, uh, they, the attorneys on both sides ask them questions. It's called vorduring the jury. And they, they say, well, is anybody in your family a doctor, a nurse? Have you ever uh, has sued a doctor? All these kinds of questions. Well, the plaintiff's attorney got into it with one of the people who they're interviewing for the jury. And she said, uh, well, so what do you think of med- malpractice case? And he says, you're a bunch of slime bucket pigs who uh, basically will do anything for a third. And then she continued to ask him a bunch of questions for the next five minutes. And it was very clear early on she was going to kick him off the jury. Preemptive. Pre-em- well, actually, uh, this was for cause uh, because – because she, he had enough pus that the judge was going to say, yeah, you, you can get out of here. Uh, this guy was serious. So they went ahead. And, of course, there's 12 or 15 other people sitting in that room. She asked for no instructions from the judge at that time. They went ahead, picked a jury. They lost the case. The plaintiff lost the case. Then she appeals saying the judge should have stopped all questioning, given a directed instruction to for those people not to listen to what this guy had to say. And basically, she wanted a reversal of the trial decision based on all of this stuff that took place before the trial. Well, Indiana is a pretty reasonable place. And uh, when this went to the appeals court, they said, listen, you had a chance to bitch right then and there if you wanted to about what was going on. Secondly, we find no area here where his ranting and raving about plaintiff's attorneys had anything to do with the decision of the jury. Uh, no, you don't get another bite at the apple because you don't like the way this picking took place. And for those of us who, who, who get tried, uh, you know, we're going to be defendants someday. This is actually good news. What it said is, you know what? If you don't take care of it at that time, don't come back and whine because you lost. And I, I think that's a, a good decision for physicians. You know, actually, Greg, it's interesting that you bring that up because I heard yesterday on the radio or TV, I think it was on the radio, uh, but we know that attorneys can preemptively say, uh, I don't want this person on the jury. And they don't really have to defend why they don't want this person on the, on the jury. I think that it's called preemptive strikes or something, preemptive something or other. Uh, it's preemptive challenge, but they only get so many of those. What, Every- well, what was what was the uh, story was that you cannot do uh, one of these for sex. You cannot exclude somebody because of their sex or their um, or or race. You are not allowed to preemptively uh, exclude somebody for those reasons. And one of the, what was being considered by the some uh, high court is whether you could exclude somebody because they were. Uh, of their sexual preferences, which is kind of interesting because se- uh, race and sex 
are easily visually determined. Sexual preferences are not easily visually determined. And um, so this is now before some high court to determine whether that is, a, is allowed or not allowed in terms of being something where you can exclude a person from a jury. Not that it has anything to do with malpractice, but it is related to what you're talking about in terms of jury selection. Correct. Um, the jury is a, is a strange group of people. And, you know, we would like to think that science prevails in these sorts of things. And the answer to that is, think again, guy, uh, it, it's not necessarily the case. Do we have time to do some cases, Rick? Actually, we have about maybe uh, five to ten minutes. All right. Let, now, we're going right to the horse's mouth kinds of cases. I want to give you a case where there was a quote-unquote victory for the plaintiff, but it was such a small victory, small amount of money, it's sort of like uh, kissing your sister. I mean, who, you know, who won in this oh, one? Oh, God. Uh, this is a failure to use uh, TPA for a man with stroke. Uh, we, we know intimately the experts involved in this case. One, Jerome Hoffman, for the defense, for the plaintiff, one, Chris Lewandowski from Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. You can't find two doctors who have more divergent views on TPA than these two. Uh, this was a case that took place in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana. This was a, uh, a uh, 65-year-old man had fallen uh, sometime during the night. The wife heard him moan in the uh, living room. Not sure exactly what time he went down, but when he got into the hospital, there was no question that uh, he couldn't speak. Yeah, he couldn't walk, had difficulty moving the uh, right arm. So he had a dominant hemisphere, something going on. This was, quote unquote, confirmed by diagnostic radiologists less than a half hour after admission. Now, we don't know from this report whether the radiologist confirmed that there was no blood or whether he actually saw signs of a stroke. And that's critically important here. Because if he actually saw signs of a stroke, it wasn't recent. It took some, that takes time to show up on a CT scan. In any event, the uh, physician did not give TPA. They heard the experts fight this thing out, what's right, what's wrong. And the jury came back awarding $150,000. Now, you're going to say, that's nothing. You know, that's chump change. $150,000 is the minimum required to get into the patient overage fund in Louisiana. And this is what was said. The plaintiff argued that he was the ideal patient for TPA, having arrived soon after symptoms. Well, we're not quite sure about that. The patient also claimed failure to provide them with information on the risks and benefits of TPA. I think it's interesting that the jury wanted to hear about what he said, what choices he gave them. I know this is going to come up again and again and again, but the, the jury's feeling, voir dire of the jury afterwards was, did he give them an opportunity? Did he actually tell them what the risks and benefits were? And uh, this isn't going to go away, Rick. This, no matter what ASAP does at the, at the uh, council meeting, this question is not going to go away. Well, you know, we did in the abstracts have a uh, reviewed a series of all of the uh, patients who uh, had sued. And at that time, 
the vast majority of the patients who sued was for failure to give TPA, which would be unfortunately another nail in the uh, in the coffin that says you, you, you ought to do this because doctors are not being sued for giving it. In fact, um, there were there were very, very few of those suits. They were the most the biggest award, however, in this analysis of about 25 cases was because of giving it. And the person uh, did not have a stroke and wound up having and uh, some other nasty consequences as a result of this therapy and wound up getting a huge award. I don't know whether, whether it was appealed or not, but the vast majority of these lawsuits are all about uh, basically fail, failure to give it. Rick, and it was a $21 million award, which was reduced. But the basis of that case was failure to re-examine after he got back from the CT scan. Because the family in that case said, oh, the right arm, which was paralyzed when he came in, was now moving and that he was improving. Well, there's no doctor note of a (laughs) re-examination. Even the nurse said, uh, you know, she had to uh, hold his arm down while she's putting in the second IV. The... The, the sort of the bottom line of that case was if you're going to give the drug and they're actually improving, nobody's supporting that. Well, um, this still remains a quagmire, unfortunately, and, and um, hopefully ASAP will do the right thing here. One of the things I think that should be done when ASAP or any me- medical society comes out with a, a guideline in terms of how physicians should behave clinically I think that one of the things that should be done, and it's done in the government uh, arena all the time, is having a period for commentary by the uh, involved people. And that really has not happened with uh, ASEP. They basically get their pool of quote-unquote experts. Uh, of course, this pool had no, con- no people contesting, I don't think, the use of TPA, uh, which was kind of skewed the uh, pool somewhat. However, had there been an opportunity or testimony by the uh, membership of ASAP, which could have easily been done through a mass email saying, here's what we're intending for the policy. What are your thoughts? They would have shot down this policy before it ever became uh, official for the uh, college. And I think that in the future, that is something that ASAP should do routinely on any of its clinical policies is have a period of commentary so that the membership could add their two cents. Want another case? You'll love um, this. Let me see here, Greg. We got about, uh, let me see. Uh, we're um, No, we don't really have time for another case. Why don't you do Wine of the Month? Oh, okay. We're back on Wine of the Month. Uh, and by the way, Rick, uh, you, you realize we had somebody in their email, and you have to admit this live on the air, who actually likes Wine of the Month. <laughs> and <laughs> now, come a cl- on. A stop clock is right twice a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that, but but he liked it. Uh, we're moving. We're moving uh, wine lovers, enophiles, into the Central Valley of California again, and uh, keeping in mind the fact that uh, uh, Mel Mel is gone, but he's not forgotten. He wanted it. He wanted volume, and he wanted it cheap. Rick pretty much agrees with that. So I'm going to point out two wines which have uh, sort of hit a new high. One of them is by Matchbook, rather, Wines, the 2009's uh, Tinto Ray. Now, you notice that that doesn't give you a varietal, and the reason is they blend a bunch of different grapes. Anything that's left over. 
Anything that's left, so thank you very much. One of the best wine critics in the world, in my opinion, tasted this stuff at $17 a bottle. Gave it a 91 on the scale. Rick, that's the kind of number they give wines that cost 100 bucks a bottle, and he said that. He said Central Valley, California. He said if you can find a better wine at that price, buy it. He thought it was terrific, and... Uh, you know, you can get it's it's local. I mean, it's here within the United States. You can you can get it from your wine distributors. Matchbook Wines, two thousand nine Tinto Ray. Drink that. I think that uh, this is good stuff. Okay, Gregory. I think that uh, is uh, the October issue. I will see you um, in a couple of weeks at ASEP, and maybe we can do another one of these things there. Uh, there. Um, between that time and, and, uh, and now, uh, nice talking with you, Greg. And, um, we're going on our big family vacation next week. You know, the one where we have 21 people going to this house we rented on the shore instead of, uh, going to the Outer Banks this year, after 25 years of doing that, the uh, vote was to train, change it. So we're going to some place in Virginia called Sandbridge. God only knows what this is going to be like. But uh, this this house sleeps 34 people. Uh, so we're going to take in some uh, strangers, I think, to help fill up the place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and your children, you, you, you take your grandchildren out to play on the beach and hope they can lure a great white. Is that exactly. it? <laughs> yeah, perfect. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, Greg, thanks for taking your time. I think that uh, Skype held up really nicely this, uh, this time. It didn't let us down. And um, that's it for now. Bye-bye.